0: After a compromise this week on several issues that had been headed to the November ballot, Mike Norton's here with us to step back from the details of the so-called grand bargain and look more broadly at what's been happening with initiative petitions. Hi, Mike.
2: Hi, hey, Sam. It's an old song, Sam, by Patti Smith called The People of the Power. Let me put a twist on that for this week, which showed us that some people who are not elected have some real power on Beacon Hill still. By that, I'm talking about activists who successfully use the Petition process to move the legislature on a series of major issues that Beacon Hill has either been reluctant or unwilling to deal with. The result? We're on the verge of a whole slate of new labor laws and an array of issues that were threatening to affect turnout and the results of this November's elections are essentially evaporating. $15 minimum wage, an increase in the wage floor for TIP workers statewide paid family and medical leave program and the rollback of premium pay for working on sundays and holidays they suddenly look like they will become reality in massachusetts it's largely due to the work of unions and retailers the raise up mass coalition rallied its members to force the legislature's hand on the minimum wage and paid leave and retailers extracted the premium pay rollback in a permanent summer sales tax holiday weekend in exchange for dropping their popular ballot plan calling for a $1.2 billion sales tax cut.
0: So is this a new playbook for how to get things done on Beacon Hill?
2: You could make that case, Sam. These campaigns have really cemented a template for success in dealing with the legislature, and that's to circumvent them and go to the people with issues that are popular among the electorate. Raise Up did it before. In 2014, they used the ballot threat to pressure the legislature to raise the minimum wage and then went straight to the people and passed a ballot question guaranteeing earned sick time for most employees. And we saw it again in 2016 when marijuana proponents took an issue that had largely been ignored on Beacon Hill and got the people of Massachusetts to legalize marijuana. The success that these interest groups are having by going to the ballot, it's not gone unnoticed. Business groups in particular are trying to rethink their own approach to the ballot. They've been handed a series of uh, new labor laws and that they had long opposed. So perhaps we'll see some business groups go on the offensive in the future rather than trying to play defense against union initiatives. Another possibility, Sam, would be a more responsive legislature, one with a capacity to head off ballot campaigns by addressing issues before they reach the initiative petition phase. If not, we'll probably just see more of these efforts by activists to force lawmakers to come to the negotiation table. Think about it, Sam. The legislature has spent much of 2017 rewriting the marijuana ballot law and much of 2018 working behind the scenes on this grand bargain. And they spent the past four years promoting and advancing their own ballot proposal, the now defunct millionaire's tax constitutional amendment that was thrown off the ballot Monday by the Supreme Judicial Court because it conflated multiple topics. It all ties back to the initiative petition process, which is obviously alive and well and continues to play a major role in Massachusetts policymaking and politics.
0: Food for thought. Thanks, Mike. Thank you, Sam. This week, the MBTA tallied up a new cost estimate for the North-South Rail Link to connect North and South stations that transit advocates have been pushing for for decades. The T also went to the drawing board for some projects that might be part of the transit system's future. Andy Metzger, uh, detail those for us.
1: The legislature and advocates, none more prominent than Michael S. Dukakis, have pushed for the T and Governor Baker to take seriously this idea of boring tunnels deep beneath Boston to link the two rail terminals. Uh, the draft study uh, released this week doesn't really make a recommendation about whether that's a good course to pursue, but for opponents of the project, it almost doesn't have to. Uh, it estimates it would cost between twelve point three and $21.5 billion, uh, depending on the route taken. And for comparison, the big dig cost $24.3 billion. Billion and bringing the T into a state of good repair, which is the focus right now, and would take decades, uh, would cost 7.3 billion. So it's a huge lift. Dukakis and others claim that the estimate is too high, and the other cities have done similar projects for a fraction of that.
0: I see. And tell me about the T's future planning. They call this Focus 40.
1: Well, for that, the T is uh, pulling out some fresh sheets of paper and drawing in very light pencil and asking the public to imagine, say, a blue line to Longwood, a orange line to Everett, or an electrified commuter rail, or autonomous buses. Uh, Those are some of the potential future transit priorities that the T isn't even considering what the cost of them would be. Uh, they're looking ahead to 2040, so it's almost like those old predictions that said that there'd be flying cars around the turn of the 21st century, um my advice would be don't bank on any of those things actually happening.
0: Oh, gotcha. And I I wonder how many of those old predictions had self-driving cars on the roads these days?
1: Well, if any of them did, they were spot on. Fifteen communities, including Boston and Worcester, agreed to designate some roadways for autonomous vehicle testing and to work with the state on a universal application for companies who want to get into that area. So the future is now.
0: (laughs) So to speak. Well, thanks very much, Andy. Thank you, Sam. This Saturday marks 13 years since the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that a private organization could use eminent domain powers granted by the city to seize private property in a Connecticut neighborhood and hand it over to another private corporation in the name of economic development. Colin Young, you covered this issue when you were a reporter in Connecticut. Now you're up here on Beacon Hill. And you revisited this week the 2005 Kilo v. City of New London ruling. You found out that the very same situation could happen in Massachusetts today. Yeah, that's
3: right, Sam. The Supreme Court's 5-4 ruling in the Kelo case was so wildly unpopular. Uh, You can imagine the outcry when people hear the government uh, now has the right to bulldoze their home if they can replace it with something that will generate more tax revenue. Public opinion polls at the time showed as much as 95% of the public disagreed with the court's decision. And policymakers in 44 states took legislative action to strengthen private property rights. But Massachusetts is not one of those 44 states. Dana Berliner, an attorney at the Institute for Justice who represented the homeowners in the New London case, said that Massachusetts is, quote, in a tiny minority of states that have had zero response on any level to the Kelo case. Here on Beacon Hill, House Minority Leader Brad Jones has been filing legislation and constitutional amendments to put some guardrails on eminent domain use, but none have become law and the topic really hasn't gained any traction. Uh, Jones said the concern when they did debate some of this uh, was that the legislature didn't want to be reactionary and sort of paint itself in a corner and preclude possible future uses of eminent domain.
0: Do you think this is an issue that the legislature could deal with at this point? Or is eminent domain abuse even uh, an issue in Massachusetts?
3: Uh, Well, the question of whether uh, eminent domain abuse is an issue really depends on who you ask. Some people I've talked to think that eminent domain abuse isn't something people generally think about as a problem until it happens in their community. Uh, And I really don't expect the legislature here will move on this. Across the country, legislative action uh, has really slowed or faded Uh, as the Kelo decision grows older and older. Uh, But the one thing that really could spur action here, Sam, is if a case similar to Kelo were to reach the Massachusetts appeals court, then the court would have to settle definitively whether economic development is a suitable public use that warrants eminent domain use.
0: Thanks, Colin. Thanks a lot, Sam. There's around one month to go until Senator Karen Spilka's planned ascension to the Senate presidency. And Katie Lennon Spilka tipped her hand a bit this week on what the Senate might look like when she's in the top post.
4: She did. We are right now in, in what appear to be the final days of the Chandler presidency. Um, Harriet Chandler and Karen Spilka agreed to their transition of power taking place during the week of July 23rd, which is right around the corner now. And at a uh, Women's Political Caucus event this week, Senator Spilka laid out some of her ideas. She kind of alluded to the turmoil in the Senate that made her ascension possible, saying she wants to create a warm, welcoming environment for members and staff and anyone involved in the Senate Um, And beyond that, she talked about the the need to invest in women and girls because that results in better outcomes for all. And she talked about having women in positions of leadership being an important way to go about that. Now, of course, Spilk is the chair of Ways and Means right now, and she has women as her chair, uh, vice chair and assistant vice chair. And she said she'll kind of still prioritize advancing women's issues as a Senate president, other issues that are going to be important for her. She talked about regional equity. That's been a big Senate talking point this year with things like regional transit and extending the rail system, Uh, social and economic justice and full engagement in the economy. She referenced her late sister uh, who had Down syndrome to talk about that because her sister needed and was involved in a lot of different programs and services. But that's what made it her able to participate in the economy. And she talked about programs and services being an important economic driver.
0: Now, those are sort of broad themes. Uh, Did she express any concrete plans beyond that?
4: Uh, One thing she did say is she talked about a a kind of internal plan mentioned uh, when she was in the House, a kind of mentoring program she helped get off the ground. She started where she paired up veteran legislators with uh, newer female reps. And she said she's hoping to bring back some kind of mentoring program in the Senate. Hmm. So it'll be interesting to watch uh, kind of where she goes on policy, too. Thanks, Katie. Have a good weekend. Thanks, Sam. You too.
1: Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit
2: masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.